I'm not claiming that's the only reason, but if your ancestors have been following almost a purely plant-based diet for hundreds of generations, and then in the last two generations they've started consuming a very different diet, one of the effects, they would have too much omega-6, which has been associated directly with risk of cardiovascular disease, with higher cholesterol, and so on. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Dr. Alon Kanan, welcome to Human OS Radio. Thanks for having me, Dan. To start off, please tell us about where you work and the type of work you do in your lab. I work at Cornell University in Ithaca. Generally, my lab covers a range of topics, pretty broad, that covers human population genomics and the effect of genetic variants on complex disease. Mm. We are a computational lab for the most part, meaning most of our background is in computer science, statistics, math, physics, and so on, as well as some genetics. Mm -hmm. What we do best is develop new methods or new approaches to examine genetic data in order to make new discoveries based on the huge amounts of genetic data that is thanks to advancements in technology is being generated. Mm. Recently, we became very interested in the combination of nutrition and how it falls in this spectrum, both in the context of signatures of natural selection, how different diets have led to different populations being different genetically, mm. as well as the implications it has on complex disease and in a field that some are calling a nutrigenomics. Tell us about some of the work relevant to the most recent article in Nature that serves as a background for the discussion on the most recent findings. We'll have to start with a bit of general introduction of some pretty exciting results will follow. Please, yeah. Our work involves our need, humans and other animals, in omega-3 and omega-6 and their effect. In general, while omega-3 is rightly referred to as anti-inflammatory and omega-6 as pro-inflammatory, perhaps... Contrary to common knowledge, it is important to have both of them. Mm. They are involved in many other very crucial functions, such as brain development, cognitive function, immune response, and the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. For the sake of the discussion today, just need to remember that we need certain levels of both of them, but then again, not too much. Right. So these fatty acids, we don't synthesize them, so we need to consume them. That's a good point. So for both of them, the functional versions come in the form of what is known as long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. I emphasize the long-chain part, as this is key indeed to our results as well, and to what you are saying, there are many fatty acids and one of the characteristics is simply the length of the molecule, mm -hmm. with shorter versions not carrying out the many functions that I described. So we can get the long-chain versions in one of two ways. First, consuming what we call animal-based foods can provide these directly. Mm -hmm. Animal-based include, of course, meat that is richer in omega-6, as well as fish and other seafood which are richer in omega-3, mm -hmm. but also animal products such as egg and milk. Now, shorter-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids of the type that we consume from any plant-based foods, including fruits, vegetables, seeds, can be converted in our body, that's what you were referring to, to longer form. A gene family called FADS, F-A-D, for fatty acids desaturases, is involved in this biosynthesis. Mm -hmm. And again, just for the sake of the current work, 
I should know that the enzyme encoded by FADS1, the first of three genes in the family, facilitates the transition from short to long in this biosynthesis. So in human health, it is critical that we have access to these long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids for human brain development and controlling inflammation. And the omega-3 is considered generally to be anti-inflammatory, and the omega-6 is considered to be more inflammatory, but both are critical for human health. Now, we'll mention the relation specifically of the variants that we find there to dozens of uh, diseases, for instance. So that's where we start. Mm -hmm. The previous study that you mentioned that has been published last year, and some of your listeners might well have read or heard about it since it has been all over the media, mostly dubbed as the vegetarian gene, Mm -hmm. and often uh, misrepresented, I'm afraid. (laughs) That's not uncommon. So in that study from last year, we studied mostly Indian populations. Okay. That is a South Asian population, not Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Most Indian populations traditionally practice a diet that is mostly plant-based. Mm-hmm. And we discovered that genetic variants in the region of the FADS genes that I mentioned have been adaptive in their populations, but not in all other populations. Mm. In other words, some genetic variants have been targeted by natural selection in the evolutionary history of Indian populations, which in turn lead to these variants having high frequencies in these populations today. Mm. And together with our collaborators from the group of Tom Brenner in the Department of Nutrition here at Cornell University, we have shown that these variants increase the efficacy of the biosynthesis of long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids from shorter ones, Mm. which we further observed to be at least in part by increasing the expression of FADS1. The amount of how much enzyme is being expressed in our cells, which can result in being more efficient biosynthesis. What are the dietary sources of the short-chain fatty acids that are then converted by the FADS1 enzyme into the longer chain? All plant-based fatty acids are all short-chain of several types, actually, and all of them can be converted by the same biosynthesis, Mm -hmm. whether it's all kind of seeds and fruits and vegetables. So it seems that this plant-based diet over hundreds of generations, of course, Mm -hmm. which entailed little direct consumption of the active forms, the long forms of omega-3 and omega-6, has led to a very strong selective pressure for their more efficient biosynthesis, because that's the only way of obtaining them in that case. Right. As humans moved from eating a more hunter-gatherer diet in certain parts of the world, the selection pressure of eating more plants caused these alterations in the expression of the FADS gene, so the fatty acid desaturase gene, and that enabled humans to produce these necessary fatty acids for our health from plant seeds and non-animal sources. Indeed, that's in Indian populations that have been vegetarian or actually vegan for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. We immediately thought about why aren't we seeing the same thing for Europeans? There have been a few related studies as well that also have not seen any result for Europeans. While we studied the Indian populations, we just applied the same methodology. 
and did not detect any strong signals for this natural selection. Indeed, we hypothesized that the reason for that is that while Europeans have indeed followed a mostly plant-based diet for most of their history, since they became farmers, since the Neolithic Revolution, in each region, to be exact, in each part of Europe, their pre-Neolithic ancestors were hunter-gatherers and practiced different diets. I'm talking about the Neolithic Revolution. This is something that took place after the advent of agriculture, anywhere between six to 10,000 years ago, depending on where we are talking about. So we decided to try and distinguish the genetic signature left by each of these two epochs of evolution, before and after the Neolithic Revolution, where the environment, and specifically the diet, has been very different. Mm. To do that, we resorted to, to what is called ancient DNA, Mm-hmm. There have been incredible recent technological advancements that allow to extract DNA from fossils and sequence it. That way, beyond getting a window, as we usually do, into evolution by studying genetic diversity that the past has left on extant populations, we can now also directly study the genetics of either extinct populations or the ancestors of some populations today. So what we have done, we mined and put together the data published by all ancient DNA studies. Most of them are in Europe. And we put these also side by side with many contemporary populations. Mm-hmm. One of these studies from David Reich's group, led by Matthewson, has already examined instances of natural selection since about the Neolithic Revolution mm. by comparing the prediction of genetic variants back then in several populations and comparing it to the frequency of genetic variants in respective populations today. They did it genome-wide on the entire genome, and they reported many instances of selection, one of them indeed around these FADS genes. One of the things that our study has done, though, for the first time is that instead of just considering differences in frequencies between ancient populations and modern populations, we also compared frequencies between several ancient populations from different periods. Mm. Since we realized that the potential effect of natural selection have not necessarily lasted till the present. Mm-hmm. Because of the change in environment, change in diet in this case. Right. And with that, I will briefly summarize three results concerning the natural selection that we observed. Please. Generalizing on the study I just mentioned, but also using other data and tests for natural selection that focus only on kind of recent periods. We found a long region of many genetic variants that are being targeted by positive selection that are adaptive recently in European populations. Mm. And much like in the same case of Indian populations, the variant that is being targeted by selection in each of them is in the direction of increasing the expression of FADS1, which, as we know, increases the efficacy of the biosynthesis. And the rationale is is the same as in India. We think these populations recently, meaning after the Neolithic Revolution, have mostly consumed what they grew with little meat or little sea-based diet and they needed an efficient biosynthesis and there has been very strong selection for such uh, biosynthesis right second we could partition europe to several geographical regions both historically and and at present and compare between them 
And these alleles that are, let's say, associated with a plant-based diet are of much higher frequency in Southern Europeans mm. and seem to have been under stronger selection in Southern European farmers than Northern Europeans, which after long discussions and reading the papers, but especially help with our new anthropologist collaborator, offered by yourself, Professor Meritus from Harvard University, we think this is also in line with diet since Northern Europe farmers still had access to some seafood sources mm. and they also drank more milk and did so earlier so once they domesticated animals cows specifically they started consuming their milk and from the milk you get the long form already mm-hmm. while in the south the Mediterranean has not been back then very useful for having a real seafood based diet and the difference anthropologically between the diets of northern and southern Europeans and we actually see this gradient of more and more selection for efficient biosynthesis as it travel from north to south Europe. So these genetic adaptations that took place enabling European farmers to be better adapted for the shift in their diet from hunter-gathered dietary patterns and adaptation clearly caused identifiable biological consequences that enabled these European ancestors to be better suited for greater dietary plant volume. Did those adaptations only allow for these humans to thrive on a wider breadth of food proportions? Or did these adaptations simultaneously make previous food proportions like high meat and seafood less healthy for this specific population? A great question. I will answer it first by describing the last result, an equivalent in populations that still rely on different diets. Great. Essentially, you say that once this biosynthesis is more efficient, they do not necessarily have to consume other foods that are not just Mm plant-based. So when we look now only at pre-Neolithic populations based on ancient DNA only. And we have such populations which were hunter-gatherers in several points in time. Mm-hmm. And we look at the same genetic variants, at the same region. We see that there is very, very strong, positive natural selection adaptation on the very same genetic variants that are targeted by selection recently. Okay. All of them, with one notable exception, that the selection is in the opposite variant, on the opposite mm. allele, what we call So each genetic variant has two alleles, let's say an A allele and a G allele. So the G allele has been targeted by very strong natural selection, pre-Neolithic, and increasing in frequency, the G allele. Then all of a sudden, as somebody has turned the switch, not only that it stopped increasing in frequency because selection has stopped, but rather selection on the alternate, the A allele, started a very strong selection as well. And the A allele instead started increasing in frequency from the Neolithic and the G allele started decreasing in frequency. So there are selection on opposite alleles before and after the Neolithic, which is selection essentially on the opposite function, meaning that pre-Neolithic, there is selection for reducing the expression of FADS1 and making the biosynthesis less efficient. 
as opposed to what we have seen in farmers. And the amazing thing is that it happens via the exact same genetic variants, which were already existent. As far as I know, it's the only example where this has happened in natural populations in general. And the question is, why is it so important to make the biosynthesis less efficient? Evolution is trying to stop it, which is going back to your question, and to the fact that having too much omega-3, omega-6 is actually dangerous. Mm. And if you have too much, the ratio between the two is also important, but let's not get into that. And since these hunter-gatherers relied heavily on a very healthy dose of sea-based diet and some meat as well, in those times they were eating not only the fish and the seafood that we are used to today, but actually small sea-based mammals as well, mm. such as seals with blubber and all. Mm-hmm. So the level that they received of omega-3, omega-6 was so high, presumably, that if their biosynthesis was efficient as well, it would just mean they would likely have too much and the selection for stopping it. That has uh, interesting implications for today, perhaps. Yeah, and we see today, by the way, in populations that are still practicing this kind of diet. So there has been a study showed a certain variant in Greenlandic Inuit, and we see some of these variants in a different Eskimo population that we studied. But Greenlandic Inuit still consume the diets that I described, mostly sea-based and so on, and they report the variant that is under a natural selection in the fat region, and we do see that it's one of those variants uh, that we see has indeed been under natural selection in hunter-gatherers pre-neolithic, but the opposite variant has been under selection recently in Europeans, which effectively lead to this variant being of low frequency today in Europeans, but not before it increased in frequency during tens of thousands of years pre-neolithic. Okay, so this plant adaptation enabled this group of people to thrive off of a much more heavy plant-based diet because of the frequency of this allele that occurred that enabled the conversion of the short chain to the long chain polyunsaturated fats that we need. Mm-hmm. Was there simultaneous adaptations that made the heretofore previous diets of hunter-gatherer based less healthy for humans, or did it just widen the breadth of what these humans could consume and thrive? Mm-hmm. It's not as though now humans were only able to eat a plant-based diet, but then maybe that is the case because if if you do carry the FADS1 gene, which means that you can convert more of the short chain to the long chain, but you're also eating a very high meat diet that contains a lot of these long chain saturated fatty acids, there could be the problem of too high levels in the body. So that is a risk. Exactly. And that is definitely a risk. Once the population has evolved to eat a plant-based diet, having too much meat in your diet can lead to high levels of omega-3 and omega-6. And of course, it has implications for personalized diet and so on. Mm. But even on a population level, I'm not claiming that's the only reason. But if you go back to Indian populations, people might find it surprising. But the risk of cardiovascular disease in Indians today especially in the big cities where you now have essentially a McDonald's or similar on every street corner, maybe different types of meat, but many populations there completely change their diet. What some might find surprising, the risk of cardiovascular disease is actually twofold in India than in any other place in the world, including even the U.S., So everybody thinks that we are eating too much red meat and have, as we as Americans, and have a heart attack at the age of 40 as a consequence. So the risk is actually doubled in India, and a different way to look at it is that about 50% of the overall 
global risk and cost of cardiovascular disease is in India, while they are representing about less than a quarter of the world's population. Mm. Now, I'm not claiming that's the only reason, but definitely if your ancestors have been following almost a purely plant-based diet for hundreds of generations, and then in the last two generations, they've started consuming a very different diet, one of the effects, they would have too much omega-6, which has been associated directly with risk of cardiovascular disease, with higher cholesterol, and so on. In fact, in Europeans, the recent study is, and where most genome-wide association studies have been, unfortunately, but most genome-wide association studies, that's the kind of the association of genetic variants with disease, they have been mostly in individuals of, let's say, Northwestern European ancestry, mostly US, UK, and so on, we see that just the variants that we have seen as under strong selection have been associated, have altogether 200 different associations with 45 different diseases and traits, including several that we found, and they all work in the direction that you would predict based on knowing if it's the plant-based allele or the meat-based allele. Mm. Specifically, we see that it's associated with the biosynthesis efficacy by seeing that they are associated with more long-chain and lower levels of the precursors. Now I'm focusing on the plant-based variants. Mm-hmm. Um, the plant-based ones are associated with lower risk of systemic inflammation and cardiac death, um, with decreased resting heart rate, which reduces risk of cardiovascular disease, with lower levels of triglycerides, and with lower risk of inflammatory diseases, specifically inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and so on and so forth, and even with a lower risk of bipolar disorder. Mm. Now, I should mention that these are genome association studies, and when I say low risk, these only affect the risk by a fraction of a percent for the most part because these are very complex diseases that have many risk factors associated with them. But the direction is always the one that makes sense with regards to what we have seen from the evolutionary standpoint. And this is, of course, in Europeans that consume today's diet. Interpreting this, you could see how the guidance to put somebody on a mostly plant-based diet, if they have one version of the FATS gene, could be deleterious to their health because they won't be converting into enough of these primary substances that are needed. And conversely, Mm -hmm. so this then sets the stage for that instead of generalized dietary guidance, personalized genetic-based nutrition programs. And this is a lot of talk about that these days. What do you think about the field? What's its promise? What are its drawbacks? So the drawback first is that there are many people and companies out there that make claims that they can design a personalized diet, while few of these are really rooted in any science, since it does not require any FDA approvals or such that is pretty wide open for charlatans. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think it's a very promising field because as I will exemplify first on these results, and it's actually about to be incorporated into a direct to consumer genomics program. One of the services is that in some cases, these types of nutrigenomic insights can lead to recommendations that only require very small changes on the side of the individual and that 
they can quite reliably and quickly feel whether anything has worked or test whether anything has worked, which is often not the case for complex diseases. Somebody like myself who carry two copies of the meat-based haplotype. So, of course, we all should ideally eat what our ancestors have eaten and the same type of diet. But I do not even hope to be able to influence anybody of changing their diet completely, especially if they are vegetarians or vegan due to specific reasons. So if somebody like that, let's say, wants to be a vegetarian and you are right, then they will be exposed of not getting enough omega-3, omega-6, presumably. Then actually one recommendation is that they can still consume directly the long form of omega-3, omega-6 from meat-based products like eggs and milk, but if you are truly vegan and you are not willing to do even that, then there are still a few recommendations that I could make. One of them, for instance, involves plant-based oils. So we all consume oils that are, by the way, very unhealthy. There is always right. a ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 associated with them. I don't know, canola oil, it's about 16 to 1. Olive oil, it's still about 12 to 1. So you would like to lower this ratio mm. and there are some new seed-based oils that you can consume, like chia seed and so on. And the thing is that the oil is like eating huge amounts of these seeds, let's say, and still they do not have any of the end product. But even if the biosynthesis is not as efficient, assuming, of course, it's not shut down completely, which is not the case, you consume so much of the precursors right. of the starting point fatty acids for the biosynthesis that the body can still produce enough omega-3 and omega-6 and there are some things that most vegans agree with me that they eat which is all types of algae for instance many of them would eat a vegetarian sushi right and they actually do carry long-form omega-3 and omega-6, they actually carry out the biosynthesis themselves. So they will do it for you. And this is something that even vegans would consume. And if they don't, it's a simple thing to add to the diet. And impact can be very quick and can also be tested in the blood. Right. They don't measure omega-3, omega-6 in a standard blood test, but it can be tested for reasonable prices. Yeah, so that was one of my next questions. What can people who are interested in their health do today to try to figure some of this stuff out? It sounds like one thing is to understand if you have copy number and variant you have of the genes. Mm -hmm. Secondly, can you do an assessment of your omega-3 to omega-6 ratio to then try to understand at least what your diet has been like and the result of it? Okay, so like I said, there is a test which is becoming cheaper and cheaper. It still involves a quite sophisticated technology, but standard companies offer the simple test at least of the main forms of omega-3 and omega-6 for something like 100 bucks. So even if the insurance companies don't yet cover it, that's an investment in one sale that might be worth making. You might have to insist with your physician to allow you to have one of these tests, but it's doable. And you can, of course, do it before and after making a dietary change. But even without the tests themselves, there are something that many vegans find themselves suffering from, some 
very mild medical issues like recurrent inflammations or these sores in the mouth, which has been associated with B12 vitamin, but we also know it's a reflective of not having enough omega-3. So if you make one of these small changes to your diet and you quite quickly see improvement in any of these types of symptoms, that shows that you are indeed uh, in the right direction and that you have been lacking specifically in omega-3. Good. I think you'd mentioned that there was one genomic test that you felt was valid that's available today. There are two ways of moving this towards translating it to practice. Ideally, it would go through the physician office or at least your nutritionist office. But the other route nowadays is with direct-to-consumer type of platforms. And specifically, one of these platforms has been in touch with us about incorporating these specific results into their platform such that they can test indeed what types of variants you have. Might ask you a couple of questions about your diet, make some very cautionary for now recommendation based on that because obviously this whole story is just part of the effect of diet on your well-being it's not just about omega-3 and omega-6 even though they are important components right. i think in the gut scheme and talking about personalized diet and nutrigenomics i think that the main thing to take from this study is just how important of a role diet has played in our revolution and changes in diet instantaneously changed the way that selection has worked, that it's inescapable that our diet today is interacting with our genetic in the way it affects our well-being. Right. And we are just starting to figure out this interaction. This is one result. We have a couple of other results in this realm as well. And for now, we can make some recommendations, but we still have to be taken with at least more than a pinch of salt. Well, thank you for coming on to Human West Radio, describing the research that you do, your recent study, the implications of your findings, the state of personalized nutrition or nutrigenomics, and some of the possibilities that this field will yield to help us have better information on ourselves to guide our health behavior towards optimal outcomes. So appreciate the work you do and for spending the time with us. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me, Dan. Thanks for listening, and come visit us soon at humanos.me.